Welcome back to the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide podcast. This edition of IPG covers five cases that have issued over the last six months that prosecutors handling post-release community supervision, PRCS, sometimes called PERCs, and parole cases are cases that prosecutors should definitely know about. Now, to discuss these cases is Santa Clara County Deputy District Attorney Max Sarzana. Max oversees the handling of the majority of felony cases involving post-conviction violations of these various forms of supervision. This podcast is approved for 50 minutes of general MCLE self-study credit. Max, we're going to be covering cases involving both parole and post-release community supervision revocations. So before we begin, are there any basic differences between these two types of post-conviction supervision? Yes. The agency that supervises people on parole is actually the parole department. People that are placed on PRCS are supervised by the probation department. Parole lasts for three years, and that time frame can be extended by the amount of time that a parolee spends in custody for parole violations. Parole cannot be terminated by the courts, which we're going to be discussing today. For PRCS, it's also a maximum of three years but it cannot be extended for time spent in custody on a PRCS violation, and it must be terminated after one year if there's no violations which resulted in a custodial sanction. And again, we're going to discuss the termination of PRCS today. All right, Max, is there some basic differences between the types of people who were placed on parole versus persons who were placed on perks? Yes. Everyone who's sent to prison, meaning CDCR, and then is released is initially released directly to parole and must check in with a parole agent upon their release. That initial meeting results in a screening and some people are transferred from parole to PRCS and there's statutes in the penal code that describe which people should be kept on parole, which people should be moved to PRCS and it includes things like um, the crime that sent them to prison. Was it particular, was it violent? Um, Are they in a gang? Are they a 290 registrant? Are they a lifetime parolee? Um, Those types of more serious cases or more serious violent defendants will be kept on parole. And the less serious cases uh, that still result in a CDCR commitment, like a grand theft if you had an old strike that was Mm -hmm. struck, those types of people uh, will most likely be kicked over to PRCS. Okay. Well, why don't we begin with the parole revocation cases that came out starting with a case that just issued a couple weeks ago, People versus Von Walde. Max, what happened in that case? So that defendant was convicted of a 245. He was sentenced to prison and eventually placed on parole. He missed a meeting uh, with his parole agent, so a petition to revoke was filed. When he eventually came to court on the violation of parole, the violation was continued to trail a new felony. The new case involved a charge of running a chop shop. Shortly after his violation was continued, he pled no contest to the new case to receive a term of five years to run concurrently with the parole revocation case. And the court found defendant in violation of his parole, ordered that his parole remain revoked. So what happens at the time of sentencing then? During the sentencing in the new case, the chop shop case, the sentencing court terminated the defendant's parole over the prosecution's objections. The sentencing court asked, quote, what's to be gained 
by having him on parole when he's getting a five-year term in prison. The sentencing court recognized that it did not have statutory authority under Penal Code Section 1203.2 to terminate parole, but believed it could do so under the power to dismiss cases granted by Penal Code Section 1385, and the people appealed that ruling. All right. Now, before we get to the, to the main issue in the case, did the Court of Appeal decide whether or not we, the people, even have a right to appeal this kind of ruling? Yes. Uh, the appellate court found that the people had a statutory authority to appeal the court's dismissal pursuant to Penal Code Section 1238A5, which permits an appeal from an order made after judgment affecting the substantial rights of the people. And that's a phrase that we're going to talk about in more depth. Did it make any difference to the appellate court that the parole termination order was under a different docket number than the original case in which the judgment, supposedly the judgment at issue, was pronounced? I know that Fresno County assigns new docket numbers to parole cases distinct from the original docket number. Did, did this fact have any play in determining whether or not the people had a, had a right to appeal? Uh, no. And in fact, we do that here in Santa Clara as well. If you think about parole, people can be sent to prison from all up and down the state of California, and parole is a statewide agency. But when you're released onto parole, you're actually supervised in the county where you reside. So each county uh, probably assigns a different violation docket number to the parole violation than the original conviction that sent the defendant to prison. So the appellate court saw no difference uh, based on the docket number of the parole violation compared to the underlying conviction. Max, it, did it make any difference to the court that effectively the defendant's entire parole period would have run while defendant was serving his prison term in the new case? In other words, it states under 1238, an appeal is only permitted if a substantial right of the people is affected. And how can it really be said that one of our substantial rights is impacted when the defendant's entire parole period would have run while defendant was serving his prison term in the new case anyway? There's that phrase, substantial rights of the people, and the court did find that this impacted uh, the people's substantial rights. Uh, but in addition to just affecting the substantial rights of the people, uh, in order to be appealable, an order must in some way affect the judgment or its enforcement or hamper the further prosecution of the particular proceeding in which it was made. And the court went on to point out that where a sentence in a criminal case is required to include a period of parole, an order cutting that period short is not merely collateral to the underlying criminal case, but rather directly affects the judgment and also directly implicates the protection of public safety. It thus affects the people's substantial rights. But in addition to that, your question contains an assumption which the appellate court did not agree with, namely the immutability of prison sentences these days. As the court pointed out, even if appealability was based on the specific facts of a case rather than the nature of the order at issue, the people's appeal was still authorized because there was, quote, simply no guarantee defendant will not be released early particularly given the state of flux in which the state's sentencing laws have been for several years and continue to be. So what that quote means is the appellate court recognized our sentencing laws have changed recently and may change in the future, 
which could reduce the five-year sentence to something much less and could result in no supervision upon the defendant's release. Case in point, Prop 57 could dramatically change when someone is released from prison. All right, so we had the right to appeal. Did the appellate court find the sentencing court had the authority to dismiss the period of parole? No. Why not? So there's two penal code sections that prescribe uh, the penalties and consequences that can flow from a violation of parole. 3000.08 talks about what the courts can do if they find someone in violation of parole. Uh, three things. One, return the person to parole supervision with modifications of conditions, including a period of incarceration in county jail. Two, revoke parole and order the person to confinement in the county jail. Or three, refer the person to a reentry court or other evidence-based program in the court's discretion, basically a treatment court. All right. In addition to that, there's Penal Code Section 1203.2, which describes the general procedures to be followed when a person's subject to revocation. And it permits the court in the county of supervision or in the county in which the violation of supervision occurred to modify, revoke, or terminate supervision of the person if the interests of justice so require. But that section prohibits a court from terminating parole, specifically stating that, quote, the court shall not terminate parole pursuant to this section. Now, the sentencing court in the case we're talking about didn't act under that section. Rather, the sentencing court attempted to terminate parole under 1385. So then the appellate court went on to explain why 1385 does not allow a court to dismiss a period of parole. The appellate court observed that the only action that may be dismissed under Section 1385 is a criminal action or part thereof. And in the absence of a charge or allegation, there's nothing to order dismissed under Section 1385. A, pe a period of parole is not a criminal action or a part thereof as contemplated by Section 1385. Rather, it's a form of punishment accruing directly from the underlying conviction, and Section 1385 does not give the trial court discretion to modify statutorily prescribed consequences of a conviction. Okay, Max. In some ways, though, is there any practical significance to this holding? In other words, even though this court, the appellate court held the trial court, didn't have the authority to terminate uh, par the parole itself, they seem to indicate that a court did have the authority to terminate parole supervision. Well, the appellate court wrote that, that uh, a trial court could terminate parole supervision under 1203.2, then immediately pointed out that is not what the trial court purported to do. However, as I read 1203.2, uh, the section in 1203.2b that uses the phrase terminate supervision uh, is immediately followed by the phrase, except the court shall not terminate parole pursuant to this section. So I believe that when 1203.2b talks about terminating supervision, it really is talking about PRCS or probation, and then immediately says, you may not use this to terminate parole. So I disagree with the one line in this decision that says courts can terminate parole supervision. You know, I think... Max, I, I tend to agree with you. It looks like it was just kind of a throwaway line. Uh, it wasn't crucial to the decision in any in any event. But yeah, it seems like certainly you could, uh, if you can't terminate parole, you can't terminate parole supervision 
either. But in any event, could a court under its Section 1385 powers dismiss a petition to revoke parole? Well, the court dodged this question. Uh, They didn't express any opinion concerning whether a parole revocation proceeding, as opposed to parole itself, constitutes an action within the purview of Section 1385. Uh, I personally think that if a court dismissed a parole violation, much like a VOP or a PRCS violation under 1385, they'd probably be allowed to do that by the appellate courts. Okay. All right. The second case on our agenda is People v. Hranchak. Max, what happened in that case? So that defendant was in CDCR serving a 16-month prison sentence for a felony drug conviction. He was then resentenced under Prop 47 to a misdemeanor. He was released from prison, given 360 days of custody credits, and placed on Prop 47 parole for one year. I refer to that as misdemeanor parole. Okay. While he was on parole, he was then convicted of a new drug-related misdemeanor and assault with a deadly weapon. He got out of custody about a month later, never reported to the parole agent, never told the parole agent where he was living. So a few weeks after that, he was arrested, and a petition to revoke his misdemeanor parole was filed based on those failures and also alleging that he absconded from parole. Eventually, he admitted his uh, parole violation. He then argued that he could be sentenced to no more than four days in custody because he was on parole for a misdemeanor and he'd already served 360 days in custody. The trial court disagreed and sentenced him to 60 days in jail, parole supervision to be reinstated, and he appealed. All right, now, on on appeal, was defendant's claim uh, in the appellate court pretty much the same type of claim he made in the trial court as to why he couldn't be uh, sentenced to more than four days in custody? It was. He basically argued that Prop 47, uh, which provides that, quote, any felony conviction that's recalled and resentenced under subdivision B of Prop 40, you know. Prop 47. Yeah, basically Prop 47, shall be considered a misdemeanor for all purposes. And that's the language that he focused on in his appeal, misdemeanor for all purposes. He argued that phrase limited the punishment imposed after reduction to 364 days of imprisonment in a county jail, which is the maximum amount of time that can be imposed for a misdemeanor regardless of whether the time was imposed for a parole violation or the underlying conviction itself. So according to the defendant, since he's already served 360 days on the offense itself, Mm -hmm. the trial court lacked authority to order him to serve any more than four additional days in custody. Basically, his argument was, because the maximum for a penalty uh, under Prop 47 misdemeanor uh, couldn't be more than one year total, including the original sentence and a future violation of parole, he had already served almost that entire amount of time, and there was no time left for any violations. All right. Were there, was there any other uh, argument that he made on appeal? He also said that above and beyond the maximum that he could serve, that the parole revocation petition should, should have been denied because inadequate consideration was given to imposing intermediate sanctions, which is required under 3000.08F, before filing a petition to revoke his parole. Okay. Let's talk first about the issue of whether a defendant could be sentenced to more than four days for the revocation. Did the appellate court agree with the defendant? No. The appellate court found the defendant was properly sentenced to 60 days in custody for violating his Prop 47 parole. And why did they come to that conclusion? Well, in essence, 
the court found that by asking for and accepting a Prop 47 resentencing, the defendant implicitly agreed to all of the conditions of Prop 47, including the parole period and the penalties that are included with parole, stating, quote, that the total time in custody may ultimately exceed 364 days if the resentenced defendant violates the condition of parole is simply part of the agreed-upon exchange for resentencing under Prop 47. In addition, the appellate court found that the one-year parole period in such cases necessarily creates an aggregate sentence that is different from and more restrictive than the basic misdemeanor sentence. I mean, obviously, misdemeanor sentences don't include a one-year period of parole. So placement on that very period of parole, as mandated by the language of Prop 47, could not violate the misdemeanor for all purposes provision, and by parity of reasoning, imposition of additional time in custody as a sanction for violating the valid conditions of that parole was, as authorized, was fully consistent with treating the reclassified conviction as a misdemeanor for all purposes. All right. Now, the other issue raised in the case was whether or not the parole agency adequately considered intermediate sanctions before filing a petition to revoke dependent's parole. Is there such a requirement? Yes. The penal code uh, section that permits the supervising parole agency to impose additional conditions of supervision uh, also permits, quote, intermediate sanctions, which include flash incarceration of up to 10 days, and that's without court intervention. Um, So penal code section 3008F provides If the supervising parole agency has determined, following application of its assessment process, that intermediate sanctions up to and including flash incarcerations are not appropriate, the supervising parole agency shall petition the court uh, to revoke parole. Okay. Then there's a separate rule of court, 4.541, that describes the minimum requirements for the written report uh, for the petition to revoke parole. And it requires the petition to include the reason for the agency's determination that intermediate sanctions without court intervention are inappropriate responses to the violation. The report must state the specific reasons individualized to the particular parolee as opposed to a generic statement for its determination that intermediate sanctions are appropriate responses to the alleged violation. So the defendant's argument stems from black letter law in the penal code and rule of court. Okay, so did the Court of Appeal find that there was or wasn't adequate consideration of intermediate sanctions before they filed their petition to revoke? The court rejected the defendant's claim that the parole agency did not adequately consider intermediate sanctions before they filed the petition. All right, so what was there uh, in the report or about the report that allowed them to draw that conclusion? Sure. Well, I'll just read what the parole agency included in their report, which the appellate court found sufficient. Okay. The report stated, quote, the defendant was recently released from state prison on 12-22-14. It is clearly evident that the defendant does not value the meaning of freedom and early release. Further, the defendant should remain in custody since he cannot abide by law, the law, and feels the need to continue in drug use and has armed himself with a dangerous weapon in the community. The defendant was convicted in the misdemeanor proceedings after his release from prison The defendant has only been out in the community for 12 days, and he cannot show he will succeed in parole supervision. He cannot abide by simple directives and report with state parole. The court found 
Nothing more was required to satisfy the requirements of the penal code and the rule of court. Okay, so there's not like a, a set language that must be used. That's probably a good idea to specifically put in that report. We find that there's not, the intermediate sections are not uh, adequate, but there's going to be some leeway given in terms of describing why that is, is true. I think the most important factor uh, in the court's analysis was that these findings had to be individualized to this parolee and not just generic uh, statements. Okay. Okay. The next two cases we're going to discuss involve Perk's revocation proceedings. And overlap, these two cases overlap to a certain extent, since both involve the question of whether due process requires Perk's revocation proceedings be governed by the same rules governing parole revocation proceedings. The first case is People versus Byron. What were the relevant facts in that case, Max? So in 2009, the defendant was sentenced to state prison for five years. She was released from prison in June of 2012, placed on PRCS supervision with terms that were designed to curtail or stop her abuse of drugs. In January of 2015, she was arrested for the 10th time <laughs> for violating PRCS after she tested positive for methamphetamine. Two days later, a hearing officer advised the defendant of the basis for the violation. And parenthetically, the hearing officer was a probation officer, but not the defendant's PO. Okay, that's significant. It is. Aside from testing positive, it was also alleged she failed to report to her probation officer, refused to sign a form for random drug testing, refused to provide a urine sample, and failed to actively participate in drug abuse treatment. So the hearing officer determined there was probable cause for arrest, and advised the defendant that the recommended PRCS modification was 180 days in county jail, which is the maximum. The defendant denied the allegations with a few choice words that we're not including in the podcast. Okay. Uh, a petition to revoke PRCS was filed in Superior Court on January 22nd, 2015. Four days later, the defendant filed a motion to dismiss PRCS, and that was denied the same day. Then on February 5th, the defendant denied the allegations in the PRCS revocation petition and waived time. The defendant then filed a Prop 47 petition for resentencing and requested to continue the PRCS revocation hearing. The Prop 47 petition was denied a few weeks later, and then a couple weeks after that, the trial court had an evidentiary hearing, found the defendant in violation of her PRCS terms, and ordered her to serve 140 days in the county jail, she appealed. And what was the defendant claiming on appeal in this case, Max? She was claiming that her due process rights were violated because she was not arraigned within 10 days of her arrest, nor provided a probable cause hearing that complied with the procedures required under Morrissey v. Brewer. All right. Now, Morrissey v. Brewer is a United States Supreme Court that's been out there for a long time back like in 1972 is when it issued. Did, did that case specifically require uh, an arraignment on a revocation hearing uh, within 10 days of arrest? No, that case did not. So what procedures does Morrissey actually require in order for a revocation hearing, whether it's probation, parole, et cetera, to comply with due process? Well, Morrissey itself uh, was a parole case. And the Supreme Court delineated the basic due process protections for a parole revocation hearing. Among those requirements is, after the arrest, there must be 
a determination that reasonable grounds exist for the revocation of parole and that it should be made by someone not directly involved in the case. That's actually why I pointed out earlier that the probation officer that went to visit her in the jail was not her supervising PO. Um, and there's actually no requirement that the hearing officer be a judicial officer or a lawyer. So it could okay. be, in Morrissey, it could be a different parole agent or a member of the parole board. All right. Uh, Morrissey requires that parolees be afforded two hearings, a preliminary hearing to determine whether there's probable cause to believe that the parolee committed a parole violation, and a second, more comprehensive hearing prior to making the final revocation decision. Um, then there was a subsequent case after Morrissey called Vickers, People v. Vickers, uh, which actually applied Morrissey to probation revocations because when Morrissey came out, it was for parole. Then our Supreme Court and Vickers said those rights also apply to people that are on probation. Okay. So in addition to what I stated previously, Morrissey also required several things. Uh, written notice of the claimed violations of parole, disclosure to the parolee of the evidence against him, opportunity to be heard in person and to present witnesses and documentary evidence, the right to confront and cross-examine adverse witnesses unless the hearing officer specifically finds good cause for not allowing confrontation, a neutral and detached hearing body, such as a traditional parole board, members of which need not be judges or lawyers, and finally, a written statement by the fact finders as to the evidence relied on and reasons for revoking parole. Okay, well, Max, the defendant seemed to be claiming on appeal that there was a violation of due process because uh, he didn't get his arraignment within 10 days. Now, there's nothing about a 10-day arraignment, as we indicated, in Morrissey. So where is this 10-day arraignment rule argument coming from? The 10-day rule actually comes 40 years later from the Williams case. It's a California appellate court case, Williams v. Superior Court. And in that case, the appellate court relied on Penal Code Section 3044A and held that when it comes to parole revocation proceedings, a parolee is entitled to a Morrissey-compliant probable cause hearing not later than 15 days following his arrest for violating parole and a revocation hearing no later than 45 days following his arrest. And they also uh, stated in that same Williams case that there was a 10-day arraignment rule, correct? Correct. Okay, so Williams has never been overruled. Now, Max, the case of Williams has never been overruled. Did the Byron Court decide that the requirements adopted in Williams for parole revocation hearings, in, in order for those parole revocation hearings to be held in compliance with due process, dictated that similar requirements also had to be applied to Perks revocation hearings in order for them to be held uh, consistent with due process? No. Why not? So Williams' interpretation of what procedures are required in the context of parole revocation hearings does not govern what procedures are required in the context of PRCS revocation hearings. The court observed that under the Realignment Act, parole and PRCS are two separate forms of supervision. And the court went on to outline some of those differences. Parole revocations are governed by Section 3000.08, which requires the supervising agency to file a superior court petition pursuant to 1203.2 for revocation of parole. Section 3044 provides that a parolee is entitled to a probable cause hearing not later than 15 days following his arrest and a revocation hearing not later than 45 days following his arrest. 
However, you can contrast that with the requirements for PRCS. The PRCS section 3455 uh, requires revocation hearings will be held, quote, within a reasonable time after the filing of a petition. And moreover, the court observed, PRCS revocations may be informally resolved. Section 3455 provides that before the first court appearance, an individual subject to PRCS revocation shall be provided an informal hearing, may waive his right to counsel, admit the violation, waive a court hearing, and accept a proposed PRCS modification. Now, if that individual declines to accept the recommendation, recommendation as our defendant did, mm -hmm. the individual remains in custody and is given a formal hearing. So the Byron Court rejected the argument that parole, probation, and PRCS revocation hearings are constitutionally indistinguishable and subject to uniform supervision revocation process. Okay, but Max, isn't there language in the Post-Release Community Supervision Act of 2011 that, that basically is realignment, which set up, uh, that's the act which set up these PERCS procedures, which states by amending set, uh, subdivision A of section 1203.2 of the Penal Code, it is the intent of the legislature that these amendments simultaneously incorporate the procedural due process protections held to apply to probation revocation procedures under Morrissey uh, versus Brewer and people v. Vickers and, and their progeny. Yes. However, the court pointed out that to render the procedures uniform would require rewriting the various statutes which treat parole, probation, and PRCS differently, something that's not a legitimate function of the court. The court declined the invitation to rewrite Section 3455 that PRCS revocation hearings must be held a reasonable time after arrest, and the court declined to expand Section 3044 to require that parole revocation timelines, that is, probable cause hearings no later than 15 days following violation, be strictly observed in PRCS revocations. The court actually chided the legislature for stating that they wanted uniform procedures, but then creating three separate systems for parole, PRCS, and probation. The court said, quote, if the legislature wants uniform rules, it should enact uniform rules, not separate statutory revocation procedures for parole, probation, and PRCS. So it's okay then to have different procedures in Perks revocation proceedings than the procedures that are used in the parole revocation context. But whatever procedures are used, they still have to comply with due process, right? Correct. So did the court find that the Perks revocation procedures complied with due process? Court stated nothing in the PRCS revocation procedures employed in this case violated the letter or spirit of Morrissey or Vickers. Although the procedures used in this case when revoking PRCS differed from those used when revoking parole, the procedures still comported with the requirements of due process as required by Morrissey. And in any event, the defendant was not prejudiced by the procedures used. And why do they come to that conclusion? Well, first of all, a neutral hearing officer determined there was probable cause the defendant had violated her PRCS terms within two days of her arrest. The defendant was advised of the alleged PRCS violations and the recommended PRCS modification, advised of her right to counsel if she elected not to participate in PRCS modification, and this was, according to the court, the functional equivalent of an arraignment and probable cause ruling in Superior Court. And second, 13 days after her arrest, the defendant appeared with counsel and moved to dismiss the petition to revoke PRCS, 
which was denied the same day. The hearing on the motion to dismiss was tantamount to a second probable cause hearing, this time heard by the Superior Court, and that second hearing actually provided greater procedural protections than those required by Morrissey or Vickers. All right, so there's no requirement for a formal arraignment in Superior Court within 10 days of arrest, so long as these other procedures are are followed, when it comes to Perks violations. So the court rejected the claim that the requirement for a formal arraignment in Superior Court within 10 days of arrest that applies to parole hearings also applies to PRCS revocation. The court concluded uh, the fact that an evidentiary hearing was effectively held 25 days after the arrest. Now, it was actually 45 days, but 20 of those days were attributable to the defendant who asked for and received a continuance. Mm -hmm. So that delay did not, as a matter of law, result in a due process violation. Now, the defendant on on appeal was was claiming that he was entitled to have counsel appointed at the initial probable cause hearing. Did the Court of Appeal address that claim at all? The court rejected the argument that counsel should be appointed at the initial probable cause hearing because doing so would undercut the informal nature of the proceeding and also because nowhere in the PRCS statutory revocation scheme is there a requirement for the appointment of counsel at the initial hearing. Max, won't the Perks procedures used in this instant case where you have a probation officer making waiver offers in which the defendant can admit the Perks violation, won't that encourage defendants who might be innocent to admit a violation in order to uh, avoid greater punishment, in other words, to, to sit there and remain in custody? Well, the court's reaction to that argument was that it failed in this case because the recommended PRCS modification stayed the same, which was 180 days, and that's frankly the maximum. Okay, well, that's in this case. But do you think that if the Perks modification recommendation changed after the defendant failed to accept the recommendation, it would have made a difference? No. My belief is that the appellate court would have given deference to the trial or BOP court who imposed the sentence much like in criminal cases where plea bargains are rejected and then a greater sentence is imposed after trial. Okay. A related case to Byron is a case of People versus Gutierrez. What happened in that case, Max? So the defendant was under PRCS Mm -hmm. when he was arrested for being under the influence of a controlled substance and testing positive for methamphetamine. This happened in February of 2015. Three days later, deputy probation officer conducted an administrative probable cause hearing. At the hearing, the defendant acknowledged he had read and received written notice of the alleged violations of PRCS, that he had a right to speak on his behalf and present letters and documents at the administrative probable cause hearing. The defendant denied committing the offense, claiming he was the victim of a conspiracy by police. He declined probation's recommended offer to return him to supervision if he would admit the alleged violation and serve 120 days in jail. The probation officer determined there was probable cause the defendant violated PRCS by using a controlled substance. And so he, uh, the probation department, filed a petition for revocation of PRCS. Then there was a probation revocation hearing the next month. This was in March. At that hearing, the trial court denied the defendant's request to dismiss the revocation petition, found him in violation, and ordered him to serve 60 days in jail. All right, so what issues did the defendant raise on appeal in this case? On appeal, the defendant claimed the PRCS revocation process violated his rights to due process because he was not 
promptly arraigned or given a probable cause hearing before a neutral decision maker as required by Morrissey. Defendant also argued that if PRCS revocation process was not subject to the identical requirements as the parole revocation process, it violated equal protection. And finally, the defendant argued that the revocation process violates Prop 36, and I mean the original Prop 36 uh, drug treatment, okay. because it permits a nonviolent drug uh, possession offender to be incarcerated rather than referred to treatment. All right, let's take each of these uh, separately. How did the court rule on whether the Perks revocation process, which was similar if not identical to the Perks revocation process in Byron, whether or not that violated due process? The, the court held the PRCS revocation process utilized in this case comported with due process as required by Morrissey and used much of the same analysis as the other court did in the Byron case we just discussed. So they found the hearing itself compliant with what was required by Morrissey? Yes. On the issue of whether the hearing itself was Morrissey compliant, the court observed that Morrissey requires only an informal hearing to determine whether reasonable grounds exist for the revocation of PRCS conducted by someone not directly involved in the case. That occurred in the instant case when, three days after the defendant was arrested, a probation officer met with the defendant to discuss his alleged violations and recommend he serve 120 days in jail. Now, what do they say about the issue of whether the time frames that were laid out in Williams v. Superior Court, same case we talked about earlier in the context of discussing Byron, for parole revocation hearings, such as an arraignment within 10 days, were applicable in the context of Perks revocation proceedings? The court indicated that the two type, types of hearings were sufficiently distinguishable that the holding in Williams was not binding. However, the court declined to decide whether, as a matter of due process, the 10-day arraignment applied in PRCS revocation proceedings because the defendant failed to show he was prejudiced by the fact he did not appear in court within 10 days of his arrest. Okay, so we have at least one case saying it doesn't apply and another one uh, sort of ducking the issue to a certain extent uh, because the defendant couldn't show prejudice. Exactly. And, and in most of these cases, they're never going to be able to show prejudice unless there's you know, some crazy reason for the delay. All right, now, how did the court rule on the argument that treating persons on perks differently than persons on parole when it comes to how these revocation uh, proceedings ha are going to be handled, whether or not that violated equal protection? The court rejected that argument. And why did they reject the argument? So the court pointed out that for there to be a violation of equal protection, there must be a showing that the state had adopted a classification that affects two or more similarly situated groups in an unequal manner. And even reasonable classifications drawn between similarly situated persons do not violate equal protection provided the classifications are made with a legitimate goal to be accomplished. That's the overarching rule. Okay. Specifically, in this case, persons convicted of different crimes are not similarly situated for equal protection purposes, and persons placed on parole are convicted of different crimes than persons placed on PRCS. Court said... Parole is reserved for those who have committed serious or violent felonies, are high-risk sex offenders, or are mentally disordered, while those who have committed non-serious, non-violent felonies are subject to PRCS. And moreover, the classification distinction has a legitimate goal, that is, that serious or violent felons should be supervised under more formal procedures than those applied to other felons. So the court 
is in essence said it's not a violation of equal protection because when these two different systems were set up, they were set up to treat the serious parolees mm -hmm. in a more formal way and the less serious PRCS defendants in a more informal manner. Okay, now the last argument that was raised by the defendant in this case was that uh, sentencing him to, to jail violated Prop 36. Uh, that's the drug treatment initiative that mandates as a general rule that a person who commits a nonviolent drug possession offense should be referred to drug treatment rather than to jail. So in, our, in this case, the Attorney General actually conceded that PRCS sentences may not be applied in a manner that's inconsistent with Prop 36. The case that was cited here by the court and probably relied upon by the AG was People v. Armogeta, which is a 2015 case from the Appellate District. Mm -hmm. uh, the court, this court, then remanded the case to the trial court to determine if the defendant qualified for treatment under Prop 36. All right. Our last case is People v. Young, and it is as much a search and seizure case as it is a Perks case. Max, what were the relevant facts in the Young case? So the defendant was released from prison back in May of 2014 and placed on PRCS. One of the conditions of his supervision was that he was subject to warrantless searches of his person and possessions, and he was prohibited from possessing pornographic materials. While he was on PRCS, police got information. He was chatting online with teenage girls about sexual matters, and they obtained permission from his probation officer to conduct a search of his home. Now, the actual search of his home did not take place until May 15, 2013, which was one year and one day after he was placed on PRCS. During the search, they located his computer. On the computer, they found child pornography. All right. Did the defendant make a motion to suppress the evidence that was found on his computer? Yes. And what was the basis for his motion? The defendant claimed that the search was unlawful because the county probation department's PRCS supervision of him had terminated the day before the search as a matter of law pursuant to Penal Code Section 3456. Now, at this motion to suppress, was there any testimony elicited as to the process by which Perk's supervision is terminated? According to the testimony of defendant's probation officer at the motion, supervision of a person placed on PRCS could last up to three years, but if the person had no violations for one full year, the department would begin the process of closing the case. The process involved a probation officer's review of the person's record to assess whether discharge was appropriate. The officer would then submit the assessment to a supervisor who, when appropriate, would transmit it to the probation department's clerk for formal discharge. The process had to be completed and the person discharged within 30 days after the one-year period of no violations. The probation officer stated that at the time of the search, the defendant had gone a year without violation, but that he, meaning the probation officer, had not yet begun assessing the defendant's eligibility for discharge. So was the motion to suppress denied in the trial court? It was. And on appeal, did the defendant raise the same issue he raised at the motion to suppress? He did. How did the appellate court rule? The search was valid. And why did they find that it was valid? So, first of all, the court found that a person placed on PRCS is subject to many mandatory conditions, including that the person at his or her residence and possessions 
shall be subject to search at any time of the day or night, with or without a warrant, by an agent of the supervising county agency or by a peace officer. So that's the clause that gave the authority to search the defendant, assuming he was on PRCS. Okay. Next, the court went in depth over the length of PRCS and the three ways that it can be discharged. Penal Code Section 3456 provides for termination of PRCS after three years or six months or one year, and I want to talk about each of those discharge periods separately. Okay, and that's significant in determining whether or not we're going to be able to do a search of someone who's on perks. Well, correct. If the person's entitled to discharge or if PRCS should have discharged as a matter of law, then obviously they don't have search terms at that point. Um, so the, the court did point out that the agency responsible for PRCS supervision shall maintain PRCS supervision over a person until one of the following events occurs. And these are the three discharge periods that, that I just referenced earlier. All right. Number one, the person's been subject to PRCS supervision pursuant to this title for three years, at which time the offender shall immediately be discharged from PRCS. That section outlines the maximum period a person can remain on PRCS, which is three years. Once three years passes, you are terminated as a matter of law. And the only exception to this, which wasn't brought up in this case, but I want to point out, mm -hmm. is there is toll time when you are in bench warrant status. Okay. So that can be added to the three years. If you go AWOL and you're revoked and you come back two years later, those two years can be tacked on. So you actually have to be supervised for three years. You can't be AWOL. Okay. Number two, any person on PRCS for six consecutive months with no violations of his or her conditions of PRCS that resulted in a custodial sanction may, and I emphasize the word may, be considered for immediate discharge by the supervising county. So that section, subsection two, outlines the minimum period a person placed on PRCS must remain on PRCS before early discharge. There's no lawful way to terminate someone's PRCS any sooner than six months, and those six months must be consecutive mm -hmm. and free from violations that resulted in custodial sanction. Okay. The final section is the one at issue in this case. The person who's been placed on PRCS continuously for one year with no violations of his conditions of PRCS that resulted in a custodial sanction shall, and I'm emphasizing the word shall, be discharged from supervision within 30 days. So That's the section at issue here. So it's different from the second one, which says uh, six consecutive months, but it's discretionary with the court. Here, they're entitled to discharge after one year if there's no violations. Actually, the section that sa says six months does not vest the courts with any power. It vests the supervising agency with the power to terminate PRCS. Okay. Um, but it's still discretionary with the agency. It is still discretionary. Okay. If they choose to, they can seek early termination, but only after six months. Okay. So we got to the third uh, section, which said they shall be discharged from supervision within 30 days if they've gone one year with no violation of a condition of PERC's supervision. What? That's what <coughs> is at issue in this case. So what do they say about that? Well, so if the person is going to be discharged from supervision as a result of having been on PRCS continuously 
for one year with no violations, the agency has 30 days to discharge the defendant. And the court observed that the statute does not require the agency to discharge the person on any particular date prior to the expiration of this 30-day period. It only requires that the discharge occur sometime within that period. And the court went on to say, unless the discharge actually occurs, Penal Code Section 3456 provides the agency shall maintain PRCS supervision. Okay. So what does that mean? Well, since the agency ha is maintaining supervision during this 30-day review period, mm -hmm. uh, that person, the defendant, is still subject to the terms of supervision, including the search conditions. The court pointed out it would make no sense to provide a 30-day window for the supervising agency to act if the legislature intended for a defendant who had completed a year without violation to be immediately discharged, which is what the defendant was arguing. The court also pointed out that there is no reference to immediate discharge in the third subdivision, the one year, as opposed to the language in the first subdivision, which talks ab about the three-year period. Mm -hmm. That first subdivision uses the language, quote, immediate discharge upon completion of the three-year period. That language is not present in the one-year period. All right. So in the instant case, the search of the defendant's residence took place one day after the defendant had been on PRCS continuously for one year with no violations that resulted in a custodial sanction. However, the defendant had not yet been discharged from supervision and thus was still subject to PRCS supervision conditions, including the search conditions. So the conclusion here is, even if a defendant has served one full year with no violations, that person remains on PRCS with all the terms and conditions in place for up to another 30 days before discharge. All right. Well, Max, that wraps up the five cases that we were going to cover today. So just want to thank you very much for, for coming on and sharing your wealth of wisdom in this area. Thank you very much.